we're glad you're here today. I know you've already been blessed. I feel like I uh, have an opportunity to speak once again to this wonderful Christmas story. And I want to go back to the Old Testament and bring a, one of the prophecies, indeed, that are, is familiar, but I, I think will be good for our emphasis and our uh, brief time together today. So if you will uh, find your Bible or your device where the Bible is found and look at um, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. You know, usually when we think of the Christmas story, of course, we always default to the two Gospels where we find the birth narrative in Luke and uh, in Matthew, and we learn there about all that we've uh, read and heard this morning uh, from the angels declaring uh, the glory that has come to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And then Matthew records the Magi came, as I made mention a little earlier, uh, but truth of the matter is, Christmas really didn't begin in the New Testament because Christmas began in eternity past. For God purposed in his heart from the beginning of time that he was going to redeem his people. And the Christmas story really is about the demonstration of God's love incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ, God who has come. And so you know as well as me that the Old Testament is replete with prophecies and of the coming one who would be the deliverer. Salvation would be available not just to the Jews, but to all who would believe. And Isaiah 9 is one of those prophecies. Matter of fact, John MacArthur called this passage the centerpiece of all Christmas prophecies because Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would peer down the hallways of time and capture this coming advent of Jesus Christ. Remember in chapter 7, Isaiah declared that there will be a miraculous event. A virgin will be with child. His name will be Emmanuel, which is God with us. Quite honestly, that's the great truth of the Christmas story. Christ has come. God is with us. The omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God has come down in the person of Jesus Christ and dwelt among us. So let's look at this text of Scripture. Let's read these verses. Let me say a few things, unpack this uh, text, and then we'll celebrate the decisions that God has for us as we seek to serve Him in a faithful way. Please stand on and read God's Word. Beginning in verse 2 of chapter 9, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death. Upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nations, increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, as you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the days of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and the fuel of fire. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Would you pray with me? Father, bless our time together. Thank you for preserving this text for thousands of years so that I could preach it today to those who are here. Thank you that this Bible that we read is not just a book from antiquity, but it's your very word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use the preaching of your word to convert the lost and to edify those who are saved today. 
be honored in your church, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You'll find there in the compass, there's a, a lot of blank, uh, blanks to fill in on this outline, and it looks rather lengthy, but we're going to move at a fast pace, so you get your pen out and you follow me as we begin by talking under Roman numeral one, his promised advent, his promised advent. Here's what we know about Isaiah. He was known as the statesman prophet. His hometown was Jerusalem. And you'll remember when I preached from Isaiah chapter 6, I made mention that he was first cousin to King Uzziah, who ruled for 52 years there in Israel. He spoke more about the coming Messiah than any other prophet. Now in chapter 9, he's prophesying about the coming one. And he uses this metaphor, as so often used in the New Testament, it's the metaphor of light. For the people who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. And Jesus would come as the light of the world. And in John 8, we read, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So let's look at the text, because I notice Isaiah mentions First, the rebellion of mankind under a, I'm calling it our need. Because he says we are people now who have walked in darkness. In the historical context of Isaiah's time, the nation of Israel was indeed troubled. Not unlike the United States of America and uh, 2019 and 2020 soon. A country living in sin and rebellion, gross indifference to God. Apathy and idolatry was pervasive. And even the uh, oppression and the captivity of Assyria was still on their minds. And God's people in darkness symbolized that captivity and that experience that they had. However, darkness is used as a metaphor throughout the scriptures. And it's used to describe the sinfulness of all mankind. The realm of darkness always refers to wickedness and deception John 3, 19, and the light has come into the world, but the people love darkness more than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Proverbs 2 says, those who walk in darkness, they rejoice in doing evil. And I'll tell you, while there are criminal activity that goes on all the time, but I would suggest, as you well know, the huge majority of break-ins and thefts and, and, and such crimes are done in the dark. I understand two-thirds of sexual assaults happen after dark. In the scriptures, darkness is synonymous with a sinful nature of every man's heart. It's what it says in Ephesians 5.8. At one time, you all walked in darkness, but now since you've been saved, you walk as children of light. So listen, the reason we need Jesus is because we all are in the same camp we all have a fallen nature. We're all born in darkness, depraved and undone. And Jeremiah said it right when he said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Can I tell you, sin is like a black hole. You know that black hole, that mysterious, gigantic cavity in the atmosphere? You know, I'm told there's such a strong gravitation pull that it's able just to suck objects right out of the heavens into the darkness of the unknown. But isn't that the way it is? You get too close to the alluring magnetism of sin and it'll snatch you right up. And you'll follow that deceitful path and you'll be headed down the road of ruin because I've learned this about sin and many of you have as well. When you're through with it, it may not be through with you. 
It has far-reaching outcomes, and it's never, ever good. I got online to listen to Mark Clifton preach last Sunday, and I, I liked what he said as he mentioned that God does some mighty things in the darkness. God wants to work in your life if you're living in a dark place, but can I tell you what it is? It's to always bring you to the light, that you would walk in the light with him. We see first our need, but secondly, his nature. Here Isaiah says, this coming one from God is the great light that is shown. And just as Jesus there was light at his birth. The shepherds watching over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared. And the Lord shone, is the word, round about them. And they were greatly afraid. So Jesus' arrival seemingly lights up the night. And even when John would write about the purity of the character of God, he uses the same metaphor of light. 1 John 1, this is the message you've heard from him. And we declare to you that God is light, and in him there are, is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him, we walk in, uh, and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. However, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So just as Jesus came clothed in light, guess what? He calls us out of darkness to light up the world with his goodness and his love. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Let your light so shine before men that they would see your good deeds, your good works, and then glorify the Father who is in heaven. We're reminded this holiday that we as believers in Jesus Christ must guard our witness. We have to keep our testimony. Listen, this is a sacred holiday for us as Christians. And while the world has commandeered our celebration and made it mostly commercialism, gifts, getaways and get-togethers and partying most of the time, we've got to guard our lives. Because I, I will tell you, there's too many Christmas celebrations that have gone south. Parties, office parties, social celebrations, and even many taking the bait, humiliating themselves. And many believers have lost their witness at a time when they need to be shining most brightly. Ephesians 5.11 says, Do not participate in faithless works of darkness. Then in verse 3, how this coming one from God will bring joy. How the people rejoice like they do at harvest time. But can I tell you that, that word joy is probably the, the most identifying word in the celebration of Christmas. There's joy that comes. The greeting that we use, Merry Christmas, you know what we're really saying to those people? We're praying it's a joyful time of year for you. May you have a, a merry expression of your celebration of Christmas, and may there be joy in your life. Even when the Magi arrived, seeing the Savior in Matthew 2, they rejoiced with the seeding great joy, it says. Listen, I will tell you, Jesus will bring joy to your life. If there's no joy in your life, something's wrong. In thy presence, it says, is the fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures evermore. While the holidays often, it seems, brings melancholy, misery, heartache, and pain, my prayer is that each one of you who are here today and who are watching online would know the joy of Christ. C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. It's the fruit of the Spirit. 
And we sing with Isaac Watts, who wrote the wonderful hymn, Joy to the World, the Lord Has Come. Let's move quickly. Not only His promised Advent, let's talk about those promised attributes. Because we see a child will be born, a son will be given. This terminology actually speaks of the preeminence nature of God's gift in Jesus Christ. He's Emmanuel, God with us. So after this this triumphant theological assessment, he mentions that he will reign as sovereign Lord and the government will be on his shoulders. Now here it seems Isaiah looks past the first advent to the prophetic future, to the millennial reign of Christ in some of this language, that thousand years on earth, that geopolitical kingdom that will encompass all kingdoms and governments, and he will rule in his kingdom with righteousness and peace. But I can tell you right now, here's what God wants to do in Jesus Christ in your life, in my life. He wants to rule in that same way, with righteousness and peace. Then it says under A, he's the wonderful counselor. When Jesus came, he came with the answer to all of life's enigmas. And the answer was his wisdom and the fact that he's the source of all truth. Would you agree with me? We've become a society obsessed with counselors. The behavioral sciences are ever-present. Study, analyzing, scripting solutions to a people now that is paralyzed with problems, anxiety, and stress. And now it seems to me we've come to believe that whatever ails us, we need to see a counselor. And and if we can just get to a counselor, we'll soon be on our way to healing. But is that really true? I will tell you, it's not the panacea to everything. Not that biblical counseling isn't effective, but the problem with most counseling in America is not that it's biblical counseling, counseling, but it's right out of Sigmund Freud's handbook of psychoanalysis, which is anti-God, anti-faith, and anti-Christ. And they will analyze your childhood. They'll find some dysfunctional anomaly to blame bad behavior on, to, to get you out of taking responsibility for your life, and they will point to all things, whether it's a controlling mother, an absentee dad, whether some humiliating experience that embarrassed you or somebody bullied you, and all it does is leave you saying, well, you know, I guess this behavior is okay. But can I tell you, with Jesus, no one spoke as he did, and when he comes to our life, he brings resolve. He will bring peace out of confusion because he knows it all. He's omniscient. He knows the deepest needs of your heart. He knows the loneliness of your soul and the fears that we all face. And if we'll put our trust in him, you know what the Bible promises? That he will guide us in the way we should go. He will show us the path of righteousness for his name's sake. I wonder, would you listen to the wonderful counselor? His words can be life to you. His ways can be your ways if you will humbly come to him. But also he's the mighty God. Isaiah declares his coming one is the mighty God. That's who Jesus is. Actually, this is the Hebrew name that you're all familiar with, El Shaddai. It means the almighty sufficient one. Jesus is the mighty God. He was there when the word was spoken to create a world. 
He's the one who came to forgive sins. He's the one that liberates us from the clutches of sin. He's the one that brought redemption in our life. He's the restorer of broken souls, and he reigns over all. He ever intercedes with us. He's at the right hand of the Father on our behalf. He is unique, he's incomprehensible, and he is unrivaled. Jesus has no peers, for Jesus is the mighty God. Michael Horton's book, We Believe, he writes this, Christ is the key to knowing God. Apart from him, there would be no world, no human speech, no relationship with God. In fact, apart from the Son, there would be no God at all. Since the only God who really exists is in the Trinity. One in essence, three in person. This is why the Scriptures describes God by revealing Christ in promise and fulfillment all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The only true worship of God comes through the adoration of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament and the New Testament alike, anytime there is worship not focused on the true God, it is called idolatry. And while many religions of the world claim to worship God, they're all really bowing down to golden calves for the only God that will be known and is known is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the mighty God. Man, I'm telling you, that will preach. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. Now Isaiah reveals this third divine name here, and he says it's, it, 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 he's come to make us a part of his family. He's going to be our, our personal father. The Hebrew text actually says he's the father of all eternity. And we call upon his name. You know what he does? He adopts us into his family. I used this text last night in Galatians 4 that says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born under the law, that He might redeem us who are under the law, so that we might receive, is the very next verse, adoption as His sons. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we would be called the children of God. So when Isaiah wrote about this coming one, he'd be the everlasting father. He was revealing that one day by believing on Jesus Christ and by the grace of God, we'll be adopted into the family of God. I remember hearing a little story about a girl in the Sunday school class and her teacher asked her what adoption meant. And she captured the idea. She said adoption is when a baby grows in the heart of, of their mother, not in their tummy. We have grown in the heart of God, and he has adopted us into his family. And then he says he's the prince of peace. We see at the birth of the Savior, multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and what peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Jesus walked with his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. He says, My peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives you. Unfortunately, here's what we all know. Generally, the holiday time, Christmas celebrations are anything but peaceful. I've heard it, and I know you have as well. There's more depression. There's more mental health issues. There's more suicides at Christmas time than any other time of the year. There's so many painful and hurtful memories around the holidays. And you know as well as me, when we get assembled together, every pain's exaggerated, every strained relationship is a little more painful. Every unfulfilled dream comes to our mind and even haunts us. And often our focus is no longer on all that Christmas means, but we 
seem to focus on our pain, our past, our predicament, or even our pretense, while the one who comes to offer peace is often forgotten too quickly. The third thing I want to say and talk about is his preeminent authority. His preeminent authority. Isaiah says this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's going to reign on the throne of David. And he will be uh, over uh, the house and the lineage of David. And he's going to rule with judgment and justice. These four things are going to take just two minutes. But, but, but stay with me here before we conclude. The King James Bible here says, first under A, the, the word I want to use is, it's enormous. It's enormous. This kingdom is enormous. It says there will be no end. The, the Hebrew word implies the scope of this vastness. Can I tell you, the kingdom of Jesus is enormous. It's epic. It's from everlasting to everlasting. Christianity is the number one religion in the world. Far greater number than Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists. But one day it's going to be the only religion because all the others will be passing away. They're cheap invitations of the real thing. For Jesus rules and reigns. He's exalted. One day every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This thing's enormous. But let me tell you under B, it's enjoyable too. It says the prosperity will never end. Like the joy of the harvest. He uses that metaphor. In other words, when you go for God, you're on the winning team. His reign, his dominion is never eclipsed. It never fades. It never fails. It's enjoyable. Uh, let me just share one of the, the, the great uh, joys of my life is being a baseball fan. been a Royals fan for 31 seasons now. About to. Matter of fact, Mary and I made her plans just, our plans yesterday to be uh, it's spring training for a week. Get to see the Royals play before the season starts. 26 of those seasons, we've had a losing record. We did go to the series, as many of you remember, 2014-15, one in, in 2015. But I'm telling you, there was a lot, and there has been in the past, a lot of years of losing. It's not fun to lose. I don't know if you saw the President's Cup yesterday, America beat the internationals, and man, I'm telling you, there was, there was joy in the camp when they won that. But here's what I know about following Jesus Christ. One day we're all going to be winners. You can be a winner if you'll get up and out of your sin and give your heart to the Lord Jesus. Because I know this, and this has been my experience, and it is certainly chronicled in the Scriptures, there's joy living your life for Jesus Christ. It's enjoyable. We're a blessed people. We know the Lord God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is enormous. It's enjoyable. It's eternal. Their kingdom will be no end. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. He is the Logos. One day this earth is going to be but a cinder. Time will be no more, but our eternal God will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. I was watching the History Channel sometime back, and uh, they were talking about the history of China, and they were telling about the Qin Dynasty dating all the way back to 200 years before Jesus Christ and how this emperor built these elaborate palaces and to protect his people from the invading Mongolians, he started building the Great Wall with 700,000 to a million people working on it. However, Qin would die in two, 2007 B.C. You know how he died? 
He developed a concoction that he thought would give him eternal life and he drank a mercury-based liquid and it poisoned him. That dynasty began 200 years before Christ and reigned in China until 1912. Over 2,000 years in existence. My jaw dropped when I heard that. But can I tell you this morning, that's but a megasecond compared to the kingdom of God. It will never, ever end. Eternity is a long time. I quit with this. Not only is it enormous and enjoyable and eternal, it's exclusive as well. With justice and righteousness, he will reign, and the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Ironically, how's he going to accomplish it? By going to the cross. He's going to give his life a ransom for many. And here's the deal. You are right with God because you've become a part of his kingdom. But it's only available if you're willing to put your faith in him and walk the narrow road that leads to life that only a few will find. There's only one paradise. It's an exclusive destination. It only belongs to those who will turn from a life of sin and turn to Jesus Christ as their only hope. It's exclusive. It's us. It's we who believe. Are you part of it? Does your life belong to the Lord God? He is the only hope of this fallen world. Would you bow your heads with me today? Lord, thank you for this prophecy telling us all that Christmas is coming because Christ is on his way. Thank you that you're the great God who was and is and is to come. And so today, in this moment of time, thank you for giving me the privilege to speak the truth of the gospel that some would hear and some would believe. I pray for those today who've come who are people without faith. Not that they haven't been to church. Not that they haven't done a few good things in their life. Not that they're even more holy than the other people on their block. But God, still there's an emptiness in their unregenerate heart. Oh God, I pray you'd come. And in your love that's patient and long-suffering, I pray you'd draw them to yourself. They'd be born again. They'd begin to walk in uprightness and truth. Shun what is evil. Cling to that which is good. Walk in the light as you are in the light. And join us and be adopted into your family because of their own personal faith. So Holy Spirit of God, we're dependent upon you. As we sing this hymn of invitation, Lord, I pray if there's any here that know you not in the free pardon of sin, this will be their day of divine appointment. I pray they'd come and give their heart to you. I pray collectively we as God's people would rejoice in our soul that we belong to you, not because we're better than somebody else, but because we have realized our need for the God who pours out his grace upon all those who call upon him. And so now I pray during this invitation time, Lord, you take it and use it for your glory and the salvation of those who hear. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. As you can see, we've got some people waiting. If you'd like to come and pray today, if you'd like to make a decision for Christ, this will be your opportunity. We're not going to be here long. I'm going to ask you to come on the first verse of this invitation hymn. While we sing, God calls, come now. 
to see you today. I uh, hope you enjoyed being in church today. I did. <laughs> I love coming to church here. Uh, we sure missed you the last two Sundays as Mary and I had to be in Florida. You know, I'm sorry about that. But, uh, but it was good to be down there with God's people and have privilege to preach. And, uh, but it's, it, it's awful sweet to be back at Hoffmantown Church. You continue to be in our prayers. We're trusting the Lord in these uh, interim days that God will continue to work and and really lay the foundation for the new coming pastor. And uh, I'm, I'm certainly faithfully praying for you and, and, and for him. I, I know God's got a man. He's got a plan. He's got a man. He is the man for your life. And he's got a plan for your life as well. So anyhow, I hope you've been, uh, enjoyed being here. And uh, we'll be back next Sunday. I expect you to be here as well, okay? God bless you. We love you. You're free to go.